Um, so I went to the DMV this week. Uh, I went on Monday, and they were closed on Monday. And then I went on Tuesday, and I didn't have the documents that I needed to accomplish what I needed to accomplish. So I have to go back to the DMV a third time uh, within the next few weeks. By the way, that is something I am afflicted by. I never show up at a government <coughs> office with the right documents. I have never, I believe thoroughly in all of my heart that what they have on the website is different than what they actually expect you to have, and it's kind of for fun uh, when they do that. So um, I, I went to the DMV. I was motivated, shall we say, to go to the DMV because my driver's license was expired 10 years ago when I moved here to, uh, can you hear me? No. Test? <laughs> Test? Not well. Hello? Test? 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 Should I just... I never know what to say. Yeah. All right, I'm good. I have a, I'll, I'll, be a, I'll have a booming voice. Um, yeah, 10 years ago when I moved back here to Savannah, I purchased a 10-year driver's license, and I thought, that is so long. It's going to be so long before I have to keep come back and do this. But I had to come back because, alas, my driver's license expired uh, at a time previous in the future, uh, in the past, that I won't tell you how long I was driving without that. Um, maybe we should edit this uh, podcast at that point. Um, anyway, I, I say all that to say I, I was motivated uh, I, I don't go to the DMV because I love to go to the DMV. I don't go to the DMV because I want to go to the DMV. I go to the DMV because I was motivated to go to the DMV, uh, I mean, out of fear, out of fear of the government, right? Like, that's what I'm supposed to do. I don't want to be pulled over and have a problem for not having gone and updated my driver's license. We're in a section of Second Corinthians here where Paul is sort of unpacking for us. Uh, his motivations for why he does what he does. And uh, he's been criticized. He's been accused of being a charlatan. He's been accused of being a fake. His motives have been questioned. Uh, he has had all kind of trials in his life. And many people have seen the trials that he's had, and they're saying, you must be a failure. Because if you were truly blessed by God, if you were truly following God, then all these things wouldn't be happening to you. The super preachers of his day were not impressed. And he seemed like a weirdo. He absolutely seemed like a weirdo. But he does not lose heart. And the criticism never caused him for once to think about quitting. Why is that? And we saw this last week. Open up to 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, we saw this at the, at the very end of the passage from last week. 2 Corinthians 5. 9 through 10 was the passage we looked at last week. Uh, Paul says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I believe that human beings were created to be worshipers. We've talked about this in here before. We don't have to be motivated to worship 
any more than my cats have to be motivated to sleep all day. That's just what we do. That's what we were created to do. The question of motivation has to do with worship. And I think that statement, Paul's statement, we make it our aim to please him, is a statement of worship. It's a statement of, I am dedicating my entire life to serve Jesus Christ. So, what we're going to do this morning, and I I have been so blessed by this passage all week long. I hope you're blessed by it. I'm really excited by it. I hope I'm not overselling it here. But what we're going to do is we're going to unpack Paul's motives specifically. So, why does Paul make it his aim to serve Christ, to please Christ? Well, two reasons. He is compelled by the fear of the Lord, and he is controlled by the love of God. Of Christ. I hope you will find this rich. I, I have found this to be a very practical help personally in, in serving the Lord. So I, I hope you will today. So we're just going to jump in. Please follow me. We're, we're in a bigger section. So we're going to get to a really important section on reconciliation next time uh, in, in 2 Corinthians 5. So, so follow along here because I... I I think if you're willing to work and track with me here, you're going to really be blessed by what Paul is saying. Okay, so try to follow along with me this morning. I, I could have just preached this first verse uh, in the passage, but I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm, we're going to go all the way through verse 15, but look with me. Let's read the whole thing, verse um, 11 through 15. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what... We are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live no longer, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. All right. So first of all, how do we make it our aim to please Christ? First of all, we are motivated, compelled by the fear of the Lord. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. All right. So the fear of the Lord is not terror, at least not in this context, okay? Christians, we have no reason to be scared of God. But a true understanding of what God has revealed about himself should lead us to reverence him. We should have a healthy and right reverence and respect for him, and it should affect how we live our lives. Proverbs 15 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The uh, Verse 10 from last week says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. And just remember, uh, we all have an appointment. God is keeping a calendar for you. The most certain thing we can say from this passage is that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will be judged For the deeds that are done in this life, I believe it will be between you and Jesus. 
Jesus, you're going to know, and he's going to know. We said last week, if you weren't here, if you have always pictured this scene being a gigantic room filled with everybody in the universe and a big video screen where everybody's just filing through and playing what's going on, that's not it, okay? This is between you and God and, and Jesus Christ specifically, and this is the place where you receive rewards, he says, for what you have done in the body. This is not a judgment of sin. That was done at the cross, all right? Uh, but, but we need to be aware that there's a coming day, and, and that should cause us to reverence and respect God all the more. If you believe that day is coming, if that is a part of your life, then it will affect, it will give you a motivation to please Christ. And Paul says that this fear of the Lord motivates him to persuade men about the truth of Jesus. All right? There are two judgments. There's the great white throne judgment talked about in Revelation 20, when men who have not believed will be judged for their unbelief. And there is this judgment seat of Christ where we who are Christians will be judged according to the deeds we have done in the flesh. Whichever judgment you're thinking of, whether you're thinking of your friends and family who need to know Jesus and need to know about the the, the great white throne judgment, or whether you're thinking of standing before Jesus yourself, there is an appropriate fear of the Lord that should motivate us to persuade men. When people encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, everywhere in the scripture, when people encounter the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus, they fall on their face. We find them proclaiming, my Lord and my God, the Jesus who appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus caused him to fall on the ground. So that image, that Jesus motivates Paul to fear the Lord and persuade others. Now, the opposite of fearing the Lord is fearing man, all right? So the fear of man is one of the great motivators, temptations that we all face. We fear human beings when we fear people who we can see more than the God who we can't see. And that causes us all kinds of trouble. Proverbs 29 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And so what we know is that we will never be able to be man-pleasers and God-pleasers always at the same time. Sooner or later, our desire to please man will come into conflict with our desire to please God and vice versa. All right? This is especially related to the truth of the gospel. It does not please men to be reminded about their rebellion against the God who created them. And people who want to be happy don't like being told that their sin is an offense against God. And I'll be the first to confess, I want to be liked by people. When someone comes to our church, I want them to like us. I want them to like our gathering. I want to understand that true church growth means hearts and not necessarily bodies, but there's something deep inside of me that stubbornly equates a crowd of happy people with success in ministry. And you're all invited to help. Let's remind each other of that as we go down this road together. When someone comes 
for pastoral care, for counseling. We want to be able to say things that are encouraging to them and loving to them. I don't want to say things that are going to cause them to think that I am harsh or unloving or unkind. And that's why I'm spending so much time on this phrase. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Why do we persuade men? Because of the fear of the Lord. And this gets to the heart of what we do as Hope Bible Church. We know that judgment awaits men for their sin. And we know that we will all stand and give an account for the deeds that we have done in this life. And sometimes when we persuade men about Christ, we will have to say things that they don't want to hear. And this is where Christians are kind of caught these days. We're not trying to displease men, but we must choose when we have to please God instead. And I think this is a truth that we need to like tattoo on our souls. Because if you are focused on things that you can see rather than the things that Paul has been pointing us to that you can't see, it's going to be very difficult in those moments for you to choose to please God when you are faced with having to take stands that you know will displease the person standing in front of you. I think this is going to matter. All right, I want to give you an example specifically from our our current day that I think is very helpful in understanding how this is going to matter to us, okay? So many of you know about the controversy regarding uh, Vice President Pence's wife teaching at Emanuel Christian School in Washington, D.C. So the issue is rooted in the fact that Emanuel Christian School has a code of conduct for its teachers and students that simply says that they expect them to live according to, quote, the moral values of the Christian faith. So at issue specifically is the fact that that means no sex outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. Historic, basic Christianity. That statement is in the handbook. This is not a moral crusade. That school has not engaged in political activism. Their statement is one that is very similar to one that would be found in our bylaws. What you may not know is that another school in the area has responded to this controversy. So the Sheridan School is a private school in the area that, that plays Emmanuel Christian in sports. And they describe themselves in their mission statement as progressive. Sheridan has issued a statement that they will no longer play any sports at Emmanuel Christian School. Because of the statement regarding their commitment to moral values consistent with the Christian faith, the Sheridan School does not believe that their students will be safe at Emmanuel Christian School on their campus. So this is persecution in the form of social pressure. And I want you to see this. This is not a law banning us from speaking. This is not a law banning schools. These are not crazy people holding signs out in front of of some institution. This is one school saying that they won't play sports at another school because they affirm scriptural principles regarding morality. This is why the fear of the Lord is important. It is a question of what motivates us more. What will we do if we must please men 
in order to play a high school sport. What will we do if membership in a Bible-believing, Bible-affirming congregation is discouraged by our employers? What will we do if our place of employment will not tolerate those who belong to churches who counsel members that their lifestyle is putting them at enmity with God? The attacks of the enemy will not come at us where we are strong. They come where we are weak. They come where we least expect it. And they often come in areas where we are most susceptible to compromise. So Paul doesn't hide what he says or believes. Verse 11, the end of verse 11, he says, But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. And that word is the word, that word known there is the same word for appear. That was in chapter uh, verse 10, where he says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We will all be made manifest. We will all be made known before Christ. Paul is saying, what I am is made manifest before you. I have appeared before Corinth, the Corinthian church, as I really am. For Paul, the fear of the Lord compels him to persuade men and to live with openness before God and the people of Corinth. So in ministry, we don't want to be guilty of the old bait and switch. We're not trying to get people to come in the room and warm seats by presenting them with a watered-down version of the gospel only to turn around later and say, oh, by the way, this, there's this stuff that maybe, not, maybe you don't like as much. What you see is what you get. We live out in the open. The gospel message, as it is, is not our dirty little secret that we're like hiding until we get people to come in the doors. It is the glorious message of the new covenant. And Paul goes on to say in verse 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Paul says, I'm not going to fight the accusations. The Corinthians know his life. They know that he lives it out before them. He's not expecting them to go out and fight on his behalf. He's simply saying, I want you to understand what I think and how I minister so that you will know the difference between those who minister according to externals and those who minister according to hearts. So just follow his thought here with me. Okay, just I just want to get you to where we are. All right. The fear of the Lord leads him to persuade men. We're out in the open with our intentions. There's nothing hidden. There's no bait and switch. And if we try to respond to our detractors, they're only going to use that to strengthen their position. So Paul says, see, I mean, they, they say, see, he's just commending, commending himself again. And so Paul says, I'm not, I'm not worried about them. I just want you to understand why we believe what we believe. And I, th- I think this is the, the, the key part of Paul's response here where he says, I don't really care what it looks like to them. I'm not trying to please men. I'm not motivated by that. I am interested in what's going on in the hearts of believers. We want to persuade men about the truth of the Scripture. Criticism is going to come. Y'all, we can work to try to seem normal. 
to the people who criticize us, but it won't do any good because their problem is with the message itself. And I I love what Paul says in verse 13. He says, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. He's like, look, they think I'm crazy. If If we're beside ourselves, it's for God. They say he's doing it completely wrong. And he's like, I don't care. If, if they think I'm out of my mind, that's fine. I'm pleasing God. I'm not pleasing to them. And, and so this, this is the last point I want to make before we move on to the second section here. We're going to seem nuts to the people around us. We are. Increasingly, we're going to seem crazy. We can't be winsome enough. We can't be agreeable enough. I know a lot of Christians want to live sort of believing that that they can just know that we're really normal people. Look, I like the things you like. I'm nice. I love my kids like you do. I'm funny. I watch sports. I, I watch Netflix just like you do. But the moment we open our mouths and we say what we really believe, they are going to think we're crazy. The students at Sheridan Christian School have nothing to fear from the the students at Emmanuel Christian. But because they hold a system of morality based on the Bible, they think those kids are crazy. Here's a little encouragement for you. Jesus' own family thought he was out of his mind. Mark 3.20, he had been preaching. He went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. So there's so many people gathered around him. He doesn't have time to eat. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. Jesus knows what it feels like to have people wanting to bring a straitjacket and put you in it. He knows what that feels like. He's been there with the people he loves the most. Regarding John the Baptist, this is, this is a funny one, and, and Jesus has a funny way of putting it. They come and they ask him about John the Baptist in Matthew 11, and they say, for, uh, Jesus says to them, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he's, he has a demon. So John's an aesthetic. He doesn't do anything, and they're like, he's demonic. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus is like, look, you can be like John the Baptist. You can be like me. They think we're all crazy. And he says, yet... Wisdom is justified by her deeds. The fear of the Lord. We persuade men. Nobody is saying this is nice. Can you imagine how hurtful it was for Jesus to have his own family criticize him and say he was crazy? This is hard. You can file this under, judge, uh, under persecution and we can look forward to being rewarded for it at the judgment seat of Christ. And I am certainly not suggesting that we should try to be weird. But remember, we're talking about motives. All right, so we are compelled by the fear of the Lord. Secondly, we are controlled by the love of Christ. Verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. There's so much in these two verses that summarizes the gospel. And that is a tremendous motivating factor for us. Central to everything we believe is the simple truth that Jesus Christ 
voluntarily gave his life for sinners. One died for all. This is substitution. The man Jesus Christ died in my place. And Paul is controlled by that fact. What does it mean to be controlled by the love of Christ? Now, I'm not a big word study guy. I don't stand up here a lot and go around and tell you what a word means in all the places in the New Testament. But this one, this word control, it actually yields a little fruit. A lot of times if you go around and you look at a word and you just look at it all over the place and you find out that it just means what it says it means. This one's interesting, all right? Listen to this. So this is how this word is used in other places in the New Testament. In Matthew 4.24, they brought to Jesus those oppressed by demons. The word oppressed is controlled. Luke 8.37, the Gerizines were gripped with fear. The word gripped is controlled. Peter tells the crowd, uh, Peter tells the crowd, uh, Jesus, that the crowd is pressing in on him. That word pressing is the same word here for controlled. Uh, In Luke 19, Jesus predicts a day when Jerusalem's enemies will surround her. Same word. Luke 22, the men were holding Jesus in custody. Same word. And in Luke 7.57, uh, Acts 7.57, the Jewish leaders, this is an interesting one, the Jewish leaders plugged their ears when they heard Stephen preaching. Same word, plugged. Now, I'm not saying that this word here means oppressed, gripped, pressing, surrounded, held, and plugged all at once. That's not what I'm saying, okay? What I am saying is that this Usage of this word, this broad usage of this word, helps us to understand what Paul means when he says he is compelled. He is compelled by Christ's love in the same way that a demon-possessed man is compelled by a demon. He is compelled in the same way that a person is compelled when he is put under arrest. He is compelled in the same way as a person who is compelled to act when they are pressed upon One writer said this, Paul found himself hemmed in on all sides by this love. He is inescapably directed and channeled by this divine cross-bearing love. The faithful, sacrificial, unchanging, atoning, covenant love of the Son of God motivated him, constrained him, and even restricted him. Now, if you're like me, on Tuesday... I was studying this and I was like, I fall woefully short of being controlled by the love of Christ like Paul is describing right here. And I've heard preachers preach this passage like, come on, be compelled by the love of Christ. And I think that just leaves us feeling a little defeated because you and I both know we can't just snap our fingers and be compelled like Paul is describing here. So what does it look like? How can we grow in being compelled to persuade others by the love of Christ. First of all, we need to think about what it means to be controlled by something. What does it look like when you're controlled by fear? What what does it feel like to be controlled by some worldly ambition or strong desire for something you know you shouldn't have? That's what Paul is saying, that it means to be controlled by Christ. Let's get real specific. What we're saying is that we would respond to people and situations in a way that pleases Christ almost instinctively. 
if we are controlled by the love of Christ. I want to be controlled by Christ in a way that, that pleasing him is my first thought. All right? So that's what we're talking about. Secondly, there's no doubt that we grow in our love for people as we get to know them and their love for us. Okay? So knowing that somebody genuinely cares for us causes us to change how we interact with that person. I know this is, this is a silly illustration, but there was a, a kid at college. He was from Arkansas when I was at Moody Bible Institute. And he sat in the back of the room and he had this major accent and I thought he was weird. And I didn't like him. And then one day, I was carrying some heavy stuff down from my dorm and he said in his thick, uh, not Australian, Arkansas accent. uh, Yeah, what's the difference? (laughs) Um, He said, let me help you. And he helped me. And we were like best friends after that. Like, why? Because I suddenly had a sense that he cared for me. I I suddenly had a sense that he, he, he had some kind of affection for me, for wanting to help. I, I am motivated. I, I love my family and I want to serve my family because it's good and right. But when my wife and my children show me that they love me, it makes me want to serve them more. We will be controlled by Christ's love as we get to know him and we get to know him through the word of God. As we read the gospels and you learn about who he is, y'all, you can actually begin to understand who Christ is as a person as you read about him. We learn what moved him to tears. We learn what made him angry. And that causes us to be drawn in more and more to his love. Third, meditate on the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. As you get to know Christ and you begin to see the significance of the things he has done, you will be controlled by the fact that one man died for many. And he died for many who were his enemies. Jesus died for me while I was a sinner. I can't picture that. I can't hardly picture that I would die for one of my enemies. But Jesus loved me enough to do that. And we're going to think about this more next time as we proceed through chapter 5. But if you want to grow in understanding Christ's love, spend time thinking about this truth related to his death. All right, so also then, what does it look like to be controlled by the love of Christ? What does that look like? Is it, is it just a, a feeling? Is it being really spiritual? What is it? Paul tells us at the end of verse 15 that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What does it look like to be controlled by the love of Christ? Very simply, that we would stop living for ourselves and start living for Christ. And I think this circles all the way back to verse 9, that Paul makes it his aim to please Christ. Christ's love for us motivates us to stop living for ourselves and to start living for him. And brothers and sisters, this is gospel-centered gospel-motivated obedience. That's what we're talking about. That is, that is the simplicity. 
It's not super passionate, super spiritual. It's not being super dedicated to studying your Bible. All of those things may be fruits of being controlled by Christ's love, but they're not the essence of being controlled by Christ's love. To be controlled by Christ is to want to live for him. And y'all, I do believe these things are going to matter. I believe they're going to matter for us. I know these seem like huge theological truths. Thank you for hanging with me. I know we're doing some heavy lifting here, but they have practical importance for our lives. What is going to motivate us to hold fast when someone is demanding that we choose between our faith and our kid who wants to play high school sports? I've been approached by well-meaning Christians asking me whether they should actually give up their jobs if forced to make a statement about Christian morality. Do I have to say I believe homosexuality is a sin if I might lose my job for it? What do you think Paul would say? He would say, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, We persuade men, for the love of Christ controls us. I think it's clear. I know this is heavy, but I want to conclude with this. Persuading men compelled by the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ is what we do as a church. That's what we do. We persuade men to stop living for themselves and to start living Christ. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, speak the truth in love. That is the summary of this passage. Speak the truth. Knowing the fear of the Lord, persuade men in love, controlled by the love of Jesus. They're going to think we're crazy. The act of persuading men to fear God is offensive. They may even accuse you of being evil. But that's okay if your motivation is to love them and to please God. This is Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. And we're going to close with this and then move into the Lord's Supper. But listen to the words of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with his power, through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. All right, so be strengthened. May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith. Quoting Paul again, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That should be our prayer. That should be our prayer for our church. That should be our prayer for each other. Y'all, if we, if God would answer that prayer and we could be filled with the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, we would truly be bold. We would truly be courageous. We would truly be fearless, just like Paul So here at Hope, we commemorate that greatest act of love ever, uh, and that is his death. We remember his death weekly, and that motivates us, and we look forward.
to his return, and that helps us to live in healthy fear. So will you, by the grace of God today, make it your aim to please Christ? And let's think about these things now as uh, they hand out the the bread and the cup. Um, Hold on to it. Uh, I'll come up again in just a few minutes and we'll, we'll take it together.